independent media is more important than ever. We don't have a corporate network behind us, and we also don't have big green foundation grants. So we really do need you, and we are actively calling in your direct support so that we can continue exploring many of these topics and perspectives, often sidelined by mainstream media. If you're enjoying our show, please make sure you're subscribed and join us on Patreon today, starting at a tip of just $3 at patreon.com slash green dreamer. Every little bit helps and really adds up. And that is the power in community. So thank you so much for however you're able to support our work. Right now, we need a little bit more than inspiration. I hope that people will feel inspired. I hope that they will feel a sense of peace and serenity that there are solutions to these problems. But I also hope they will be activated. What is the role of art in environmental conservation? And what may future generations deduce about our time based on studying the artwork that we leave behind from today? That's just the tip of the iceberg of what you'll hear today. Green Dreamer is a listener-supported show, and I need your help to be able to continue doing this work. If it's become a regular part of your routine, or if it's inspired you in any way, and you're able to support Green Dreamer starting at just $1 per month, you can head to greendreamer.com support for more information. And thank you so much if you're already a patron. It helps a lot, and I do really appreciate it. For now, to our conversation with Aviva Romani, an ecological artist whose work has been exhibited and published internationally. What's really amazing, though, is that her art has driven actual ecological restoration efforts, and her body of work centers around her trigger point theory, which is the idea that small points of carefully selected intervention might affect large systemic transformations. What this means for us is that if we wanted to drive drastic, big change, it's not necessarily about being the loudest or having the most number of people behind us, but it's about identifying strategic points of sensitivity to focus our efforts on. She's writing a book on this right now, so you can look forward to that. And also on Patreon, you'll hear an extension of this conversation where she sheds light on the six parts to her trigger point theory and how we can go about identifying these trigger points to intelligently and strategically drive positive change. Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast for creatives, visionaries, and entrepreneurs dreaming of a sustainable future. Thank you for bringing your light. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. I think a lot about how it feels to be young today and to be facing the kinds of challenges we do face in the world. When I do have a chance to work with young people, I am very moved and very inspired by the sense of intelligence and commitment that people like yourself bring to these topics. So I'm very grateful to have a conversation with you about some of the issues that I feel very passionate about. And you asked me how I started. I think the environment has always been really important to me. When I was a child, I grew up in a semi 
rural neighborhood and spent many, many, many hours just wandering with my dog, making fairy tales out of the woods and what I encountered. And as I grew up and people began to develop the area, I was really dismayed and even more dismayed that my father was part of developing the area because it was something that felt so precious to me. Mm. It took me a long time, however, to put together the elements for an ecological practice because when I was growing up, there really wasn't anything like that. There were artists who were doing land art, people like Robert Smithson who went out into the deserts and they, in effect, sculpted things out of the land. But that's really anathema to the kinds of values that I have. I think what he did and what others have done was very beautiful, but it's a real testament to the idea that we as humans have the right to shape the earth. And that's not what I want to do. How did you grapple with the grief and perhaps conflict too with being around your father who was a part of the development piece of your local area? Well, I have to say you ask really wonderful questions. They are serious questions, they are deep questions, and they are difficult questions. I had violent fights with my father. He was a developer. He developed a great part of what's now Sleepy Hollow in New York in Westchester County. And he cut down the trees that I loved. Mm. And I wanted him not to cut those trees. And we had terrible fights about it. And we had fights about it from the time I was about 11 or 12. In fact, the fights were so violent that eventually I was able to go away to school, to boarding school, because I really don't know if I would have survived much longer in our family with the amount of passion I had the amount of anger I had at what he was doing. At the same time, of course, he was supporting a family, and, and that's what he did. That's what people did in those days. Mm. So do it, of course. <laughs> yeah, I often have arguments with my dad as well. He's not a developer himself, but he's definitely pro-development in the sense that we, we need to improve and advance as a society. So development is necessary. And it's definitely very conflicting to be so close to somebody who believes in a future that looks so different than what you believe. Yeah, I agree. It's really interesting because for almost a year I've been working on an opera and I've been working with a librettist about the narrative for the opera. And one of the ideas we've been tossing around is something that would be intergenerational, where a young girl would be the activist opposing her father, who would be a lawyer for fossil fuel corporations or possibly a developer. And some of the kinds of uh, interesting story conflicts that might come out of that. Mm. So far from alone, and apparently neither was I. Yeah. I'd love to hear how you 
how you became an ecological artist. So did you first become an artist and then narrow your focus to ecology, or did your passion to support environmental restoration precede your decision to use art to elevate that passion? In 1962, when I was preparing a portfolio to go to art school, and it was really the first time that I began to pay attention to what it meant to really be an artist and really started to work on my skills. And the first thing that attracted me was to do something with the landscape. As I became a serious artist, I was very interested in street theater and performance work and installations. And I just absorbed all that and just kept trying to make stuff that came out of what I felt passionate about at the time we were all opposing the war in Vietnam. It was in some ways a time that's quite similar for young people to what you're facing now. And the task was how do we integrate our lives with what is going on? It was very clear to me then that the problems with the environment that I cared about so much were really relational problems. So in the beginning, for I say the first 20 years of my career, I focused entirely on relational feminist issues such as domestic violence, rape, and child abuse. At some point in 1989, I ran out the rope on those issues and realized that there had to be a much more direct address to the environmental concerns I had. And simultaneously, I had been living in the country and I had been working with habitat and with restoration issues and urban planning. So it was all very much on my mind when I decided to move to Maine and begin work on the Ghost Nets project, which, as you know, was a restoration art project that restored a former town dump to flourishing wetlands. Over the years, you've come up with a collective of powerful artwork, each inspired by a different subject with its own thesis. And I'd love to touch upon your work titled Cities and Oceans of If. I'll link to this in our show notes so our listener can get a visual of it. But for this work, you had international proposals for sites where you wanted to put in this public art intervention. And the goal was to inspire ecological restoration of these sites and to help connect fragmented resources. What does it mean that our natural resources are fragmented today? And in the bigger picture, what's the impact of this fragmentation? Yeah, really important question. Because what we desperately need is what's called contiguity when all the habitats can link, specifically tree habitat. We know that at one time the Middle East was forested, and now a good deal of that territory is desertified. We know that over and over again, people have decimated and clear-cut forests, largely for wars, to take control of the population because in many populations, for example, the Romans in Wales, the idea was that 
people were so attached to their forests. It was such an important part of their spiritual lives that if they cut down the oaks, they would cut down the spirit of the people. Mm. And the Romans prevailed. And now we have the Romans all over the world. Nothing is standing in the way of these bulldozers. It is a devastating prospect. In the project that I did with Dr. Jean Turner and Dr. Jim White, one of the things we calculated for the project called Fish Story in 2013 was that if we could regreen the earth by 36% by 2030, this was in 2013, we could mitigate climate change. And we are doing exactly the opposite, and we have done exactly the opposite. So go forth and plant a tree. Well, your art just really stands out to me because, of course, of its depth, it drawing upon ecological science and knowledge, and also because it serves the purpose of really trying to inspire and drive action. Ghost Nets, for example, your work from 1990 helped to restore 2.5 acres of habitat in the middle of an Atlantic seabird Class A fly zone into a flourishing wetland system and personal residence. What do you think it takes to translate artwork into real-life ecological restoration, and what has this experience been like for you? Since 1990, there are now hundreds of people trying to practice ecological art around the world in various ways and different forms. I hear about it every day. So I think the only thing you need is to care tremendously about the environment and whether the human species is going to survive in any kind of sustainable way and whether you truly love the natural world of trees and other animals and clean air and clean water. Of course, training helps. Education helps enormously. And I would never counsel someone to just do it. I really don't think that's realistic. I think you have to have a combination of the passion and the skills and the information. But that's now available. There are classes you can take all over the world in developing an ecological art practice. And for individual viewers that come across your art, what do you hope people who experience your collection of work will walk away with? That's a, a really important and, and difficult question, even though it seems obvious. I've thought about it a lot in terms of the book that I'm working on. What do I want my readers to walk away with? Right now, we need a little bit more than inspiration. I hope that people will feel inspired. I hope that they will feel a sense of peace and serenity that there are solutions to these problems, but I also hope they will be activated. And there are many, many ways right now that we can become activated and activists. It doesn't have to be through art. It can be through writing letters and showing up at demonstrations. It can be, and I have a advised my former students when I taught at Stony Brook, get involved in politics, run for office. I'm, I'm not particularly a Bernie Sanders supporter, but he's absolutely right when he tells people 
to get involved in government. If if we don't, we get the government we deserve, which is apparently the government we've got right now. Mm. Reflecting on the past, I feel like we often look to art history to understand a particular time period and its popular culture, societal values, and maybe key events as well. So when future generations study our artwork left from our modern society today, what do you think they'll deduce or presume of us based on the most popular forms of styles of art in this decade? Well, it's hard to have hindsight about the future. It's possible that the kind of artwork that will survive is something like Jeff Koons' stainless steel dogs, in which case they will deduce that we liked big stuff of questionable meaning. (laughs) I don't know how much of the kind of work I do or that of my colleagues is going to survive, and if it survives, in what form. Mm. My hunch is that the ideas will survive. And as I often say, since I did the Blue Trees Project, you can't kill an idea. You can kill the artist, you can destroy the artwork, but the idea lives on. And I would hope that some of my ideas are useful enough that they will live on. As to what people will see in the future of what survives, the whole planet is going to be a testimony to that. Well, to put it another way, what what do you see as our current most popular forms of art today? Like, are, are, is a lot of art digital right now? or oh, People are making art in, in a million different ways. Yes, a lot of it is digital. I think the most interesting stuff that I'm seeing is not so much tangible as conversational. In the past year, I've attended a slew of panels with really smart people of all ages who are really desperately trying to think through what do we do? We've got this horrendous crisis, an imminent utter catastrophe, and the people at the top are not helping. So it's going to have to be a bottom-up solution. And I saw that when I was at Copenhagen for COP15 for the IPCC Convention on Climate Change, that the governments were not going to be useful. But there were a lot of people, even business people, who cared a lot about the implications of climate change. And they were willing to invent all sorts of ideas that might address the problems. And people are still doing that. Mm. So today, art is taking a much wider range of forms than before. Yeah. In the last century, a number of different artists said, in effect, that anybody can be an artist, anything is art. Well, that is true and it isn't true. There is the skills part. There is the intellectual part. But the other part is that anybody can go about problem solving creatively. And when you do, for example, in this platform that you've created, you're making art. 
I'd like to think that. <laughs> I do think that. That means the world coming from you. And I was going to say, for somebody who's contemplating their role in activism, the immediate options people may look to as direct participation may include things like getting involved in policy, doing volunteer work, joining public demonstrations, or supporting the work of nonprofits. Art may not be an immediate or as tangible of a method that comes to mind, but I personally believe that it can be immensely influential, maybe in a much subtler way. So what are your thoughts on the roles of art and creativity in our environmental movement today, and where does their power lie? I think that creativity can take many forms. I have mixed feelings about large demonstrations because obviously the politicians in power right now don't give a flying F for how many people show up to protest climate change or how many wonderful signs people create for it. And other people have said to me about that, about my doubt, that many of these demonstrations are really for the choir. They are for the converted to know that we're not alone. Mm. And there's truth in that. But it's clearly not enough. I taught a class in activism at Stony Brook a couple of years ago. And we referenced some text about what was most effective historically to protest unjust governments. And the bottom line was you have to have a strategic approach. And in our times, I think that includes virtual platforms very powerfully. The alt-right has shown us how effective that can be. I think we can take cues from our enemies. I think that 9-11 was an object lesson in how you plan very, very carefully, use relatively few resources, and then devastate what you perceive as your enemy. That was an object lesson we should learn from. It's not enough to rant about terrorism. We have to look at the idea that a small group of people planned very carefully and very intelligently to have a big effect. And sadly, it was a very good example of trigger point theory. I think we also have to look at this president. He has been brilliant at leveraging social networking platforms. And we need to learn from that. And we need to be smarter than our opponents. We need to do something that's more positive than what the alt-right is doing. But we need to learn from the skills they're applying. So we too have to learn to identify strategically the trigger points to target and not necessarily be the loudest, but to work with a plan targeting the right places? Yeah, to be the most effective. I was struck in your statement on your website about feeling helpless, because I think that is a strategic success. That is, this society has taught people, especially women, but, but almost everybody learned helplessness. Resistance is futile, that we can't do anything. That is a trope 
That is not reality. That is a learned idea, and we must unlearn it. And I suppose the argument I would have against people who only show up at demonstrations is that it's very passive and it's very lazy. We really have to put our heads together and think this out strategically if we're going to prevail. Well, if you were to paint a picture of a world where our natural resources are valued and protected, and the vision you hope your work will inspire has been manifested, what does that world look like? At this point, I think I would draw from many examples in various indigenous cultures, including the horse tribes of Mongolia. They developed a whole culture that was interactive with their environment. But that was also true of the Plains Indians in North America. That's true of the Aboriginal people in Australia. Over and over again, cultures have learned to exist in relation to their environment sustainably, where they don't take more than they need. One of the great catastrophes of Western civilization was the King James Bible, which advocated manifest destiny. That was a mistranslation of the Aramaic, which says we must caretake the entire world. King James said, no, forget about caretaking. I'm the king. Let's say we have dominion over the whole world. And that's how we will state it in the King James Bible. And that has validated generation after generation of extractors and exploiters and slavers and the kinds of oligarchic capitalists that now are dominating our economy and the whole earth. So we really have to shift from the desire to dominate and win to the desire to care and to steward. I think so. And that's, as you know, it's a complicated problem. Our culture builds in lessons in competition. And of course, there's constructive competition, but constructive competition doesn't want to destroy the adversary. Constructive competition learns from your adversary and celebrates the accomplishment of whomever wins. Mm. In Many native practices, when they take the life of another animal, they thank the animal in prayer. I don't think we do that when we go to the supermarket and buy a pound of sirloin. So overall, what do you think we as individuals can do to help bring to life this vision that really shifts away from our destructive and extractive approaches today to one that is truly about supporting one another, collaboration, and caretaking of the world? I think the first thing is that people have to be brave. They have to recognize that they're being taught to feel powerless and helpless. That when they are celebrating their own apathy, what they're celebrating is the victory of oligarchic monopolies uh, to destroy the earth. Uh, So courage is the first one. Then the second is the kind of thing that you're doing and so many young people are doing, which is creating community 
and then creating community between platforms. That's what the alt-right is doing, and that's what the progressive left has to do, those of us who are environmental activists. And in that process, we have to be willing to be generous and to help each other, and ideas will emerge from those interactions. And then finally, I think the task is to cherish beauty, whether it's in the clouds we see, or trees, or in each other, or in our own natures. Because that celebrates and reminds us of what we are trying to preserve. So the Democratic debates happened recently, and I wanted to ask you, would you be interested in me breaking down each presidential candidate and their stance and plans of action to protect our environment, uh, enhance social equity, and support our public health? If so, please subscribe to Green Dreamer on YouTube so I can gauge interest. You can subscribe for free by going to greendreamer.com YouTube. In the meantime, I've also started to share some key talking points and suggested action steps deduced from each episode on Patreon. So if you're able to support the show starting at $1 per month, you'll get access to all the extended content there as well. For more information on this, just head to greendreamer.com support. And thank you so much if you're already a supporter of the show. For now to our final five, let's power through. What's an uplifting publication or social media account you follow? Well, this is a generational question, and I will not give you a terribly intelligent response. I mostly am on Facebook, where I seem to have a large enough community of intelligent people, such as Rebecca Solnit, who continue to inspire me. And I'm very grateful when I get enough likes to know that I have a community of my own. What do you tell yourself to stay positive and inspired? <laughs> when I don't feel positive, I take a nap mm. because more often than not, when I'm feeling depressed about circumstances, it's because I'm just tired and I do work really, really hard. And so when I get feeling down, I remind myself I'm likely tired and maybe I need a little nappy. <laughs> on a similar note, what's one thing you're working on right now for your health? Well, you know, I have a lot of health issues at this point. One is simply that I'm getting older. Another is that for at least half my life, I've had chronic fatigue syndrome. That was actually what inspired trigger point theory in many ways. But also I've been dealing with cancer off and on. I don't have any cancer right now, but I've had two bouts with it. And when I did my research on cancer and ways to deal with that disease, I came across a lot of research on cytokines, which are biological or biochemical activators in our systems, and they can become disrupted, and when they become disrupted, that makes us vulnerable to cancer. But if I could think of them as I started thinking of them as a dance, a biochemical dance within the body, which is really a response to the external world, for example, all these things we've been talking about, 
then I can think that this is not a battle that I'm in that I'm going to be defeated by. This is a dance, and I simply have to see where the movements are going to take me. Mm. What's one thing you're working on right now to live more sustainably? I am giving a lot of hard thought to where I'm going to live. I'm in the process of selling my co-op in New York City. I've been considering moving someplace like Albany. And the kinds of things that I'm considering are where we'll be safe if this government continues to implode. (laughs) Where will there be water? Um, where will we not be taking water from other peoples? Where will we not be underwater? Hmm. Important questions to start thinking about. Um, what makes you most hopeful for our planet at the moment? People like yourself, people like Greta Thunberg, young people who are willing to be very passionate about the realities we all face right now and are willing to fling yourselves into searching for solutions. Well, thank you so much for this deeply insightful and thought-provoking conversation. We would, of course, love to keep learning from you and to check out your work online. So where can we follow and support your work online? Well, you're welcome to friend me on Facebook. I warn you that I talk as much about personal issues as I talk about conceptual and intellectual and political issues, but I'm quite accessible there and I would enjoy your friendship. And what final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? Carry on because you don't know what the next hour is going to bring. Green Dreamer, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for all that you continue to do and inspire, and thanks for tuning in. Again, to access my weekly takeaways and suggested action steps deduced from each episode, you can join me on Patreon at greendreamer.com support. And with that, you'll also be able to access any additional extended parts of these interviews as well. Green Dreamer is an independent multimedia platform, and I'd like to keep it this way, so I just wanted to thank you sincerely to our patrons. Every little bit of your support really helps, and yeah, I, I really appreciate it. And thank you as well if you've gone to share Green Dreamer with friends on social media or write a review of what you're enjoying in the podcast app. Finally, as we're wrapping up, just remember, now more than ever, our planet needs your light to thrive. So if you haven't yet, hit subscribe and I will catch you later, Green Dreamer.